Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, special thanks to Rachel and Pastor Mike. Good job, you guys. And all the parents who helped. Chase them out the door. All right. You know what? I just, what a blessing to see children who are being raised in godly homes. They're being taught the truth of God's Word. Amen? And I just love their childlike faith. It's precious. It's such a great thing. All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles, because we are going to study the Bible this morning. Much to the shock of some of you, maybe. But <laughs> Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Hey, if you're new here, God bless you. If you're visiting because you had family or friends involved in the program, we're really glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome. You know, Calvary Chapel, we don't have membership. You show up, you're a part of the family. That's the way it works. And... Uh, Just so you know how we do things, on Sunday mornings, we just go right through the Bible. We just teach verse by verse. We started in Matthew, and we just teach a chapter, half a chapter, depending on how much is in there, each week. encourage you to come on Wednesday nights. We started in Genesis 1. We'll be in Ruth chapter 4 this coming Wednesday. So we're just teaching the whole counsel of God. So to catch you up real quick, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, just to tell you kind of what's happening at this point. Timothy is really what it is, is a letter. It's a letter that is being written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, not his physical son, but a man that he had been pouring his life into who was now pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted. Paul writes this letter to Timothy because as the church is growing, this new church is only about 30 years old since, again, Pentecost and the beginning of the church. During this time, They're living in the midst of idolatry. They're living in the midst of already false teachers being raised up who are teaching something contrary to the truth. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, who's ready to quit, who's a little bit disgruntled, and he's encouraging him to stay by the stuff, as my dad would say, to be faithful, to continue on in teaching the whole counsel of God. And as we've gone through it, we saw him exhorting the people to teach no other doctrine. By the way, there's only one truth, and Jesus is the only way to heaven. Amen? Amen. And people struggle with that because they'll say, well, man, that just seems so narrow. But you know what? I'm glad it's narrow. I'm glad it's simple. I'm glad it's straightforward. I'm glad he loved me so much he'd rather die than live without me, and he sent his son to suffer and die in my place. How about you? Amen? Amen. Now, he gives them a very clear command to say, guys, don't let them teach other doctrines. The false teachers that might come in among you, you need to to rebuke them and set them aside. But then he gets into some real practical stuff. He starts talking about the qualifications for a pastor. He's talked about, again, the things that, just real simple things that a pastor would need to know. I've shared with you as a pastor, I read through these pastoral epistles two or three times a year at least, sometimes more, because it's good guidelines for us in the church. Now last week, we began chapter 5 in what is a very practical chapter. Very practical. And what we talked about first, the first half of the chapter talks about how the leadership within the church is to treat the people. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, this is how you should treat the people in your church. And real briefly, he said, the way you ought to treat older men is with respect. He said, you don't rebuke an older man. You come alongside him and you treat him as you would treat your own father. He doesn't say, you know, don't, don't speak to him and, and with truth and don't water down the message. He's not telling him to do that, but he's telling him that when you approach him, make sure you do it in love. He's not telling him to change the message, but to make sure that he does it in a kind and godly way. But then he says with younger men, treat them as brothers. 
So younger men, you treat them like your brother. Again, you can be more exhortive with them. I shared with you how when I was a teenager, there were some men in the church who, God, God bless them, loved me enough to be pretty direct with me about some things. Things that I've not forgotten. I remember a man coming into, I worked at 7-Eleven when I was a teenager. And I remember a man coming in that was one of the assistant pastors in our church. And he said to me, Dave, do you realize you are the salt and light of this place? And God has you here for a reason to reflect him to the customers. And I'm like 17 going, uh. <laughs> but you know what? I, here I am, 26 years later, I still remember it. And he's saying with younger men, exhort them like brothers. You know, come alongside them. And you know what? You can be a little more direct with them, but treat them still like family. Then he says with older women, he said, treat them like you would treat your mom. Again, a similar situation where, you know, not to water down the message, but the way that he speaks to the older women in the church is with respect and honor, the way that a loving son would speak to his mother. Then with younger women, I think this is important, he said, make sure that you treat them as sisters with all purity. You know, within the church, men are to treat women with all purity. And especially older men to younger women, pastors to the young women in the church, you treat them with all purity. There should be no flirtation. There should be nothing inappropriate in a way that a man treats a, a woman within the church. The women who come to church ought to feel comfortable by the way men treat them. Now, all of these things are family. He's speaking in family members because that's what the church is. We're a family. It's been said that blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. When you got Jesus in common, you got everything in common. Amen? Now he gets to the last part, and he talks about how they were to care for those who were in need. Now, I shared with you last week, some of the hardest things to do as a pastor sometimes is to know who to help and who not to. And he gives this clear direction to Timothy because he was obviously struggling with it as well. And he was speaking about which widows were really widows and should be taken into the number, which meant they were to be cared for by the church for the rest of their lives with food and provision and clothing and shelter. And he said, but before a woman is counted in that number, there were some qualifications. Now, these are things that we all can learn from because God does have a plan on who he desires to help. Now, understand that God's plan is always to minister to people, but sometimes he ministers to them by not giving to them. Sometimes when we give to people, all we're doing is propping up sinful behavior or propping up laziness or the wrong attitude. And sometimes what God wants us to do is to let them realize the consequences of their actions that they might look up. And so with the women, he was saying, look, they're really widows if they're at least 60 years old, if their family cannot care for them. So that's an exhortation to us that we are to care for our family. The Bible says a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. What that means is even an unbeliever would provide for his family, and certainly those of the household of faith should be providing for their family. And so it's an exhortation to men, it's an exhortation to us as children when our parents get older, that we are to care for them if it's at all possible. That should be a priority for us. And so then he continues on and he said, look, if they're younger... Younger women, they need not be counted among the number. They need to go out and get a job. Now, he said 60 was the age. So 59-year-old woman, go get a job. That sounds kind of harsh. But he knew that if they were younger and still of marrying age, that God's highest was still for them to be married again. If their husband had passed away, that marriage was still his ideal. So the real widow had to be someone who was left alone, but also she had to be someone who trusted in God. 
He said, if she's not trusting in God and serving in the church and a part of the household of faith, you shouldn't help her. Now, this is a difficult thing because, you know, you balance scripture where Jesus said, give someone a cup of cold water in my name. So how do I balance that? When somebody who's outside of the household of faith wants to be helped, we have to use discernment and make sure anything we do, we do in the name of Christ, that he is glorified. Amen. But also we need to take time to use wisdom to make sure we're using God's resources in a way that God would want us to. So a real widow was someone I had nowhere else to turn, was a woman of godly character. She served in the church. It says she lodged strangers. She washed the saints' feet. She ministered to the sick. This was someone who had served others, and now it was time for the church to serve her. Now, that's the first half. And that's how pastors and leaders should treat the people within the church. This is giving them some discernment and how they're to minister to the people. Now this half of the message, and if you're new here, I promise you, we just go right through the Bible, okay? Because now it's how the church is to treat the pastor. I told you you had to come back this week and you showed up. But it's funny because people go, man, I come to church for the first time and he's talking about how we ought to treat him. That's just wrong. But it's in the Bible, so we're going to teach it, okay? Sometimes it looks a little self-serving. Well, you had to really honor those guys. And, uh, yeah, but here's the truth. The truth is that the Word of God is there for a reason, and God's given us clear instruction, not only in how the pastors and leaders should treat the people, but how the people should treat the pastors. And so this morning, we're going to continue looking at how God wants His people to be treated. we got two points. How the people were to treat those in leadership, the pastors and elders, and then how the pastor was to identify leaders within the church. Again, really practical stuff, but has application for our lives today. How we ought to again, interact with other people. So let's begin, we're in verse 17, how the people were to treat the pastors. It says, let the elders who rule be counted worthy of double honor. Now understand that pastors are people. I don't know if you knew that, but they are. Sometimes we think, and I did this, you know, you grow up and you've got to be careful. People start putting pastors on a pedestal. Every pastor is a sinner saved by grace, just like everyone else. And you know what? They have just the same struggles and the same trials and the same difficulties and the same temptations as anybody else. And if anything else, there's a bigger target on them than other people because the enemy knows if I can bring him down, I'll bring others down with him. And so I would encourage you, pray for those who minister to you. If there's someone you listen to on the radio, you know, the pastors in this body, pray for them because understand that the enemy is there to attack. But understand, too, that in those days, he's writing, there were false teachers everywhere. And sometimes, in the midst of all the false teachers, we start to lump all the pastors together. Let me ask you a question. When you hear the word televangelist, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What's the answer? It's a bad thing. And you know why? Because a lot of them are just straight out crooks. Is that true or not? What's the answer? And so what happens is, because there's guys on TV who are fleecing the flock and Guys who, you know, their whole motivation is to make money. And, you know, you look at those, that, those circumstances and you can lump all the pastors together if you're not careful. And he's saying the same thing here. There's false teachers and I want you to rebuke them, Timothy, but don't put all the pastors in one lump. And so he gives some qualification for who the elders really are. Because those who truly have a calling on their lives do experience difficulty, but with their calling, God has given them, again, there's some honor and some respect that goes with it. Now, like it says there, let the elders. Now, who are the elders? Just in case you don't know. 
In the Bible, elder, bishop, and pastor are all interchangeable. We have a group of, of nine guys total in our church that are, we call them the pastors, but they're also the elders. It's the same thing. And what is their calling in their job? Now, all of the elders in, in, and pastors on this planet have a, the same calling, and that's this. An elder describes who the man is. He must be spiritually mature. We saw this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The qualifications for a pastor, there's 15 of, there, 15 of them there. 14 of them speak of character. Only one speaks of gifting. Too often, we're looking for gifting when we ought to be looking for character. Amen? We're looking for, oh, he's so eloquent. That doesn't mean anything. Look at the character behind the man. That's more important than even how gifted he may be. So the elder describes the man. He's spiritually mature. Bishop describes what he does. He oversees. A bishop just means overseer. He oversees the people. And then pastor describes how he does it. He shepherds and ministers to the people as a servant. A pastor is an under rower. You know who the head of the church is? Jesus Christ. No man. Amen? Amen. And every man is simply a servant. And a pastor is really the chief servant. He's the one called by God to serve the people, not to be served by the people. At the same time, notice that he gives some qualifications for who the elders really are and those who are worthy of being respected and given honor. Now look what he says. Because again, Paul had just excommunicated people. And in the midst of the false teachers, there were those that were to be given honor. But notice what he says the qualifications are for those who are worthy of honor. Look what it says. Let elders who rule well. The word there in the original language means to preside over, manage, to be a protector and a guardian. And the word well in the original language means beautifully or with excellence. So those, these are the ones who are worthy of double honor. Those who rule well, who preside over, protect, guard, guide the people beautifully with excellence. And it says, be counted worthy of double honor. Now remember, the false teachers cast them out. The pastors and elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. The word worthy means entitled or deserving. I know this sounds very self-serving. And if you're here for the first time, I came here to hear the pastor tell us how much we should love him. But that's not the case at all. What I'm saying is that God has given all of us gifts. And the gifts he's given us, he wants us to use for his glory. And we are to respect and honor the gifts that God has given to people. Amen? And recognize that they come from the Lord and not from men. But we can't hold up that gifting to a mirror. And we can look and see if that person is a person of character who's honoring the Lord. Now, double honor. While this can be an inference that elders were deserving of respect, and again, it also speaks that they are to be taken care of financially. Now again, if you're here for the first time, we don't pass an offering plate here. You know why we don't? We don't ever want anybody to give because they feel like someone's prompting them or pushing them to give. You give with a cheerful heart or don't give at all. Amen? Amen. That's the heart of the Lord and that's our heart here. But it does tell us from this text, back in in verse 3, it said that they were to honor the widows. And that was talking of take care of them financially. And it says the pastors, the elders who rule well, the ones who rule well, are worthy of double honor. That means they're to be taken care of financially. Now, let me make it very clear. Pastors should not be living above the means of the people within the church. Pastors should not... I heard a guy say double honor. That means you take the highest amount of money anybody's making in the church and you double it and that's what you pay the pastor. I'm like, dude, you're just straight out of your mind. Then I became a pastor and I thought, well, maybe. No, no, I'm not. 
No. But he's saying, what he's saying is that we are to care for the pastors and the leaders and their families. Those who sacrificially give of their lives to rule well, to minister to the people, to care for them, as they minister to you spiritually, you're to care for them physically. Does that make sense? That's the body of Christ, and that's what he's saying in this text. Now again, I want to make it very clear that no pastor's motivation for being in ministry should ever be money. Ever. If his motivation's money, he should go do something else. His motivation ought to be, I can't, woe unto me, if I do not preach the gospel, this is the only thing I can do, and God has called me, and I must obey, and whether they pay me or not, I'm going to do it. And that ought to be the pastor's heart. But the people's heart ought to be, you know what, as he studies and prepares and counsels and ministers and lays down his life, we don't want his family to have to suffer, although we see that a lot in the world today. You know, it's, it's interesting to me how often I see that in the church. There's one or two extremes. Some pastors, they, you know, they're, walk, they're up there with a $5,000 watch and a $4,000 suit and driving a car, you know, living in a mansion. That's ungodly. Let me just tell you right now. First Timothy says he's not greedy for money. Amen. Back in chapter three. Amen. He's not greedy for money. He should not be greedy for money, but at the same time, we should not starve them either. And I've been in ministries where they think the way you can prove if a pastor is really called is you pay him about one-third of what he would need to live on, and if he's willing to starve and have his family go without food and clothing and suffer, then he must really be called. And you know what? I know pastors who've pastored under that anyway and said, that's fine, I'll do that. But you know what? That's not what God says in His Word. And I know others who say, well, we shouldn't pay the pastors anything. We should give all the money to the needy. And again, I understand the sentiment behind that, but you know what? You're going to have needy pastors if you give all the money to the needy and you don't take care of them, amen? And you're going to have families, wives and children who resent the ministry because their families are starving. When I served in, in churches, I, my heart was always to make sure that the pastors were cared for, and that's God's heart too. But notice what it says. Here's a caveat for those who deserve double honor. Look what it says. Especially those who labor in word and in doctrine. The word labor in Greek is to grow weary, tired, or exhausted. To toil with wearisome effort. The ones that are worthy of double honor, especially those who are devoted to studying the word of God to the point of being brought to the end of themselves so that they might be able to minister to others. Again, not the pastor who, you know, who gets his message out of a box, who doesn't spend time laboring in the Word, has nothing to feed you. You know what? They're not worthy of that double honor. He's saying, and this is a message to every pastor and everybody who, who's here who may feel called into ministry one day. He's telling us we need to labor in the Word. It says in 2 Timothy, study to show yourself approved. A workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word workman is a toiler, someone who toils in the word. Those who labor unto exhaustion and toil in the word should be supported by the body. The pastor who faithfully feeds his people should be fed physically by the people. Now the next verse, he makes it clear that he's talking about taking care of their needs. Look at verse 18. For Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul quotes from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You shall not muzzle the ox. This is an Old Testament from Deuteronomy 25. 
And he's saying when, when they'd have an ox, and maybe they would it'd be tied to a pole and going in circles. And they would have wheat on the ground, and as it walked along the top of it, it would you know, crush it, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff and the grains from the stalks. And he says, don't muzzle the ox while he's walking around and keep him from bending down and eating some of the fruit of his labor. Because if you do, you will starve the ox to death and he will die. And he's saying there, don't muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. And the same is true in speaking of those who serve in ministry. It is cruel to starve those who labor and work hard in word and in doctrine. And then he quotes Jesus from 1 Corinthians saying, The laborer is worthy of his wages. Jesus was speaking to the apostles and he's sending them out and he's and he and he basically tells them, look, when you go out, it's okay to eat and drink for a laborer is worthy of his hire. If you go out and you're doing ministry and someone invites you into their home, let them invite you into their home, let them take care of you. And what he's saying is that it's okay for them to be ministered to because a laborer is worthy of his hire. And the same is true for those who serve full-time in ministry. If a man is working hard, care for his family. Ministers to you spiritually, minister to him physically. And again, I said the two extremes. A pastor should not be greedy for money. He should not be living above the, the level of his people. If anything, my heart is that the pastors should always live a little below to where someone can look at your lifestyle and not see it being extravagant in any way. They should be able to see that. You know, just to be transparent with you, as pastors, we think about what kind of car we have. Even if our car is old, if it looks too flashy, we're concerned because we don't want to stumble anybody. We think, you know, Pastor Chuck, somebody gave him a, wa- a Rolex watch, but he won't wear it because even though it was given to him free, he doesn't want anybody to think that he's spending God's money that way. So a pastor should live in such a way so that he doesn't stumble anybody by his lifestyle. Now at the same time, we're not to starve the pastor and his family either. Try to prove that he's called by his willingness to starve. Again, that's just not God's will. Amen? Now, I set the salaries for our assistant pastors. And just so you know, you know those who, who serve you guys, you know what? Their desire is not to live in luxury or to be rich. But at the same time, my heart is that they, they've been willing to make less. All pastors that I've ever met took pay cuts to, become, to come into the ministry. And I'm not saying that for any other reason but to say their motivation was not finances but to serve God. Now, I want to say this too. I don't think it's a luxury to make sure their kids have shoes and they have food and they can go on a vacation once in a while and you know, if their kids need braces, they can afford it. Amen? I think that's the way the body of Christ ought to operate. And too often it's this attitude of you know, just like giving the leftovers to those who serve. That is not God's will. That is not God's highest. We need to have balance. Amen? Shouldn't be walking, I shouldn't be driving, a, you know, living in a $2 million house and driving a $80,000 car and wearing clothes that cost more than your car. Amen? That should not be happening. And at the same time, shouldn't be walking around in a potato sack, you know, eating scraps from the food bank. Amen? Just make sure that they are cared for. And that's what he's saying. He's telling Timothy. Now, not only did he speak about compensation for those who serve, but accusations against them. In these next two verses, Paul hits the balance between believing and acting on every bit of gossip and ignoring serious sin in a leader's life. And we should do neither one. Look what he says in verse 19. 
Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Now, he doesn't say don't believe. He says don't receive. That means don't hear it. Don't listen to it. Isn't it true that if you hear something, it sticks with you? Is it true or not? Even if it's just a straight out lie, you have to wonder, well, I wonder if that, is there any way that could be true? And we're not to entertain it because you know what the enemy wants to do? The enemy wants to bring us to a place where we no longer can listen to the one who's teaching us. And if people bring enough false accusations, we start to listen before you know it. When we go to church, oh man, that guy's, you know what I mean? And before we know it, or he, you know, it's one of the assistant pastors, that guy's trying to counsel me and man, his own marriage is a disaster based on gossip that's going around, right? And can I tell I'm just going to be real direct and open with you guys. I know that's a shocker. But you know what? Pastors expect to be lied about. It's going to happen and they know it. But what breaks their heart is when people believe it without ever coming and talking to them. That breaks their heart. And it doesn't break their heart because their name is harmed. It breaks their heart because the Lord's name is harmed. I'll just be real honest with you. I really don't care what people think about me, but I care a lot about what they think about Jesus. Amen. And if, it, if, if something is said about me that's not true, that harms the name of Christ, it breaks my heart. If something is said about any pastor or someone who's in a position of leadership in the ministry, we need to be careful that we, again, when we hear accusations about them, that we don't automatically believe it. Remember, Elders and pastors are human beings. They sin just like everyone else. They need their share of rebuking and and repenting like everyone else. But remember that on the front lines of God's army, they're going to face more attacks than anyone else, including attacks of slander. And Paul's saying, you know what? People are going to lie about them. Make sure it's two or three. Not two or three people who are sharing the same story. Right? Fred tells Ethel and Ethel tells Lucy and then the three of them all come to you. That's not... That's not three witnesses, amen? That's three gossips. Can I tell you this? People have left our church over conversations that never took place. I've talked to people two years later and they're like, well, I heard that this happened and you said... I'm like, I never even met that person in my life. They're like, what? Then they apologize because they told 25 other people. And the truth is that there is a time when the pastor needs to be And we're going to see in the next verse. He needs to be held accountable because along with double honor, there's extra accountability for the pastor as well. He says, let not many of you be pastors. That's what the Word of God says because you're going to be held to a higher form of judgment, a stricter judgment before Almighty God. And you should not take it lightly. But know this, that with that heavy responsibility, there's also going to come those who are going to attack. And as they do, we need to make sure that we don't spread lies. People believe things about pastors here based on false accusations. And the hard part, again, isn't that our name is harmed, but that the Lord's name is harmed. You know what? If you do hear something, don't spread it. Come talk to us. If you hear something about me, come talk to me. Please. You will not offend me if you come talk to me. If you heard about another pastor, if you're from another church and you heard about your pastor, go talk to him. It's better to be direct. People do call, and I appreciate that when they have concerns. And it says there, 
except for two or three witnesses. Now, that's one extreme. Now, the other extreme is we need to make sure they're held accountable. Amen? We shouldn't just be saying things without knowledge, but at the same time, we need to hold them accountable. Look what it says in verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. Those who are sinning, while those in leadership serve within the church, again, are counted worthy of double honor, so too they are held to a higher level of accountability. And if a leader is found to be in sin, his rebuke and restoration should be handled publicly. Ouch. Those of you thinking about being in ministry, think about that one. You know, if you blow it, you may be in the pastor's office and will minister to you and, you know, and there's restoration. If the pastor blows it, bring him up in front of the church, tell everybody what he's done. Okay. You know what? It makes you think really hard about stuff when you're in the ministry, and it should. Amen? Amen. You know why? Because when the pastor falls, if he's the one standing up in front, and he's the one teaching the Word of God, and he's the one ministering the truth, then you know what? He needs to be held to a higher level of accountability. And when he does blow it, it says, bring him in front of all the people so that all may fear. Now sadly, this week, I'm on a senior pastor server for all of Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel, I don't know, there's a couple thousand of them now. And we all exchange emails, people have theological questions, we just, sometimes it's practical stuff, and we just exchange things. In this last week, two pastors have been disqualified for ministry, and one of them, I got a copy of the letter that they got up and read to the whole church last Wednesday. And I'll tell you what, it strikes me with godly fear every time I see it. Because I think, Lord, may that never be me. Because I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace and there before the grace of God goes I. And just like all, every one of us, if we look at someone else and think, oh, I can never, then you know what? You take heed lest you fall. Amen. Amen? Amen? Every one of us needs to stay desperate for God in a place of crying out to Him. And church discipline is not to bring destruction but restoration and the public rebuke serves as a warning to the entire body. Notice this, I want to say, what is it that disqualifies a pastor? What disqualifies him? Well, the same characteristics that qualify him, if he has them, are the same characteristics that disqualify him if he doesn't. And the three, there's many, there's 14 characteristics, but these are the three that I see most often disqualify someone from ministry. Number one, husband of one wife. Doesn't mean he's marrying three women. But here's what it does mean. There's a compromise in his marriage. Both of these men who fell, fell for the same reason, sexual immorality. One of them had gotten heavily involved in pornography, and the other one had had an affair. Now, by the way, to me, pornography is the equivalent of an affair. Amen? Amen? And you need not be looking at that stuff. You know what? All it does is it devalues your wife. Your wife is the one that God has put in your life and you are to cherish her and value her. And he talks about having agape love where you esteem someone outside of yourself greater than yourself. Pornography is totally fleshly driven and it is an epidemic in the church today. And no doubt in this room this morning there are guys struggling with it. Now I want to encourage you with something. Let today be the day that you come before God and ask Him to deliver you from that struggle. And have some accountability and the Bible says if you write I offend, you pluck it out. So if you're struggling with it on the internet, get rid of your computer. Amen. Oh, well, Pastor Dave, I need my computer. Well, you know what? You need your wife more. <laughs> Amen? Amen? 
You need your walk with God more. And you need to honor her. And you know what else? You shouldn't be flirtatious with women. The way that you treat women when you're alone, and you shouldn't be alone with a woman anyway, but when you are talking to a woman, it should be the same you would talk to her if your wife was standing right next to you. And so here's one of the biggest ways the pastors fall. You know why? Because the enemy knows that this is a, a weakness of all men. And those women will come. I heard one guy say, look, I'm 65, I'm old, I'm fat, and I'm bald, and i got women throwing themselves at me. He said, how's that possible? He said, because I'm in the ministry and God's doing a great work. It would never happen if I was, you know, an accountant. It just wouldn't happen. <laughs> but the enemy knows. And so we need to make, be careful. Another way the pastors fall is being greedy for money. Again, the televangelist on TV. And they justify their greed by taking Scripture and contorting it. Well, the Bible says, you know, no, no it doesn't. I hate that. I just taking the Word of God out of context. Remember, you take the text out of context, all you got left is a con. Amen? And that's what these guys are. They contort Scripture to make it say what they want it to say. Yeah, if you, those who are really spiritual, really, really rich. That's why I just built a $12 million house. Please. Jesus had no place to lay his head, the Bible says. How about that for an example, amen? You know what? Let's live more simply that others may simply live. Let's take God's resources and use them for God's kingdom, not our comfort, amen? amen. And we need to be careful. By the way, it's theft, embezzlement, and you know what? Just for your, for your own knowledge, I don't even write checks here. Very rarely, if ever, will you see me even counting the ties. I don't even know what you give. Some of you are going, Whew, you know, but... <laughs> I don't know what you give. You know why? I don't want to treat anybody with partiality, and I, don't want, I want to be above reproach when it comes to the church finances. Period. Lastly, a big one is pride. What starts to happen is, if God's doing a work in a ministry, those who are in leadership can start to think it's got something to do with them. They can start taking the credit. Before you know it, they got their names on buildings and on ministries, the worldwide ministry of, and got your name after it. We have a running joke in the office. I've told the guys, the quickest thing will ever get you fired is put my name on anything. One day I came in on a Wednesday night and they were just messing around and said, welcome to the worldwide ministry of Dave John. That said right up there. It was like quarter till. I'm like, you know what? You're all fired. They're just messing with me. But here's the point. If someone starts naming things after themselves, drawing people unto themselves, you know what? When you look at someone in ministry, they ought to be pointing always to Jesus. Because without Him, we can do nothing. And He gets all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. And any gift we have, He gave us. And so why in the world should we? We're just tools in the hands of our Master. Amen? And the Master, not the tool, gets the glory. Amen? And so we need to be careful. And these are three areas. And I share these with you because if they're prevalent amongst pastors, they're prevalent among all men. Amen? So be careful. And I encourage you to pray for them because the enemy is coming after them. So... We see how the people were to treat their pastors, both in compensation and with accusations. And now let's finish up by looking at how the pastor is to identify leaders within the church. Look at verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, they observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. You know, here's another temptation. First of all, we need to understand that everything we do, God is watching. That's a good thing to put like on your refrigerator on your mirror, over your TV, on your steering wheel as you drive. God is watching. 
Because it's true, isn't it? God's watching. And because He's watching, we ought to live in a way that would glorify and honor Him. And he says, it says there, before God, the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that observe these things. They're watching. So he says, because they're watching, do nothing with partiality. Whether it be in, in disciplining a leader or laying hands and ordaining somebody, when it comes to spiritual discipline or ordination, you're not to be prejudiced against anyone or partial toward anyone. You shouldn't ordain someone because they're your friend. And you shouldn't discipline someone harshly because you don't like him. He's saying show no partiality in the way that you handle things within the body of Christ. Discipline and ordination are based solely on God's standards, not worldly influences. Pastors must never let friendships interfere with the word of God. The standard must be the same for everyone. There's no partiality with God. I learned this lesson very early on. Most of you know I spent about 15 years as a a youth pastor, and then we came over here and planted a church. And when we first started, I had someone who was very close to me, who I had known since high school, who was a very big part of our body. And we were very small, maybe 15, 20 people. And through the Word of God and through some circumstances that had come up, we made a decision about something. I had prayed about it. I knew I had heard from the Lord. And He showed up at my office to demand of me that I do things the way He wanted, or He was leaving without even thinking, I just said, gonna miss you. And you know what? It does hurt. But the truth is, there will be those who will try to take relationships to influence those in leadership in the ministry. And the truth is, God's word is the authority, not anything else. And if God says that we must obey it, even if everyone else disagrees, even if the biggest tithers in the church disagree, We need to make God's word the authority and follow that. And it's heartbreaking when it happens. And it isn't always easy, but we must never compromise the word of God in order to accommodate man. God is watching. Focus on Him, not on accommodating man. Amen? Amen. Then it says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. He says, Don't lay hands on anyone hastily. Now this is calling raising up other leaders. You know, when you, lay, when you raise them up, you lay hands on them, you ad, uh, ordain them. And he says, don't appoint leaders too easily. You know, it's easier to put someone in than it is to remove them. It's better to just wait. Because the people who are really called will do it whether you recognize them or not. And it takes time for the depths of someone's character and calling to be revealed. You know, character and gifting is seen in a heart of a servant over time. Now, it's not uncommon for young men and women in the ministry to be impatient. Man, I've been serving around here for three months. When are they going to recognize? You know what I mean? And the truth is that, that there is that impatience, but that's also a sign of a lack of spiritual maturity right there. Because it's interesting, every person that I've, as I've prayed and I've said, hey, you know, I feel like the Lord's, it, the Lord's already done it. He's put this calling and gifting on your life. I'm just recognizing it. Every one of them felt unworthy, uncalled, and blown away. And tears followed. That's someone who's called. Not someone striving for position. Well, if they don't recognize me pretty soon, I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, they will. You know what I mean? Just serve God where you are. Amen? And he's telling the pastors, don't lay hands on anyone too quickly. Watch for a while that their character may be shown forth over time. 
nor share in, an, in other people's sins. You know how you share in someone else's sin? By raising someone up too quickly. You raise someone up, and in, and in truth, their life is really a disaster, and you don't know it, and you've put them in a position of authority, and now you've taken their sinful behavior and spread it all over the whole body. So he's saying it's better to take your time. And then he says, keep yourself pure. Again, as someone who leads by example, God's calling those in ministry to, to be pure before the Lord. By the way, God has called us to be holy. Do you know that? Amen. Now, people struggle with that. Well, is it grace or is it works? Is it faith or is it works? You've heard me say it. It's not faith or works or faith plus works. It's faith that works. Amen? Amen. And when you start to trust that God's call to holiness is not a call by Him to give us a bunch of rules so we can't have any fun. I'll show them I'm God. No fun for you. Now that's not God, is it? Is that God? You know what it is? He's a loving Heavenly Father who knows what will harm you. And says, I don't want you to be hurt. You're my child. I love you. Don't fall into this trap. That's the heart of our God, isn't it? And so when God says, walk in holiness, He's saying, walk in my way that is safe, that is pure, that is right with me. And you know what? When we do that, we'll always be blessed. You know what? He's saying, don't make sure we keep ourselves pure, keep ourselves eternally focused. Now this seems like a random verse, the next verse. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now where did that come from? But here's the point. Before you get all excited and go out and buy a jug, (laughs) look what he says here. Underline a little and for your stomach. A little for your stomach. Not a lot after a hard day's work. Amen? Amen. This is medicine, not refreshment. Amen? You got to understand, in those days, the water was very impure. You know, we've all heard of Montezuma's Revenge, right? I got it in Russia. And all it is, is that your body is, is comfortable or, a, a, you know, can handle the water where you live, right? It assimilates to it. Then you go to another place where the water's a little different and you get violently sick. And here's, here's Timothy. He's gone around all of Asia Minor planting churches. And this poor brother's got stomach problems. And he tells him, take a little wine for your stomach. The wine within the water would dilute and help you know, cleanse it so that it wasn't, you know, people said this, and you know, again, this is my perspective, but you, know, you can drink a Coke anywhere, right? Because even the water can't handle all the chemicals in there, right, Pat, right? But the truth is, but the truth is that, that it's like that with the wine. A little wine would dilute it and make sure that it would kill the bacteria and stuff. And so he's not saying, you know, have, have some wine, man, it'd be good. No, that's not what he's saying. He says, take a little wine for your stomach. I'm thinking teaspoonful, not a jug, amen? Okay, so there it is. Now, again, it's like NyQuil. Does NyQuil have alcohol in it? You don't drink that stuff by the jug. If you do, we got to talk after church. Amen. (laughs) But the point is, medicine, not refreshment. Now, let's finish off. Now, look what it says. Getting back to the don't lay hands on men quickly. Here's why. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. You know what? Some people's sins are really easy to recognize and it's real easy for us to point fingers. But sometimes, some of the most holy appearing people only appear holy because they're really good at hiding their sin. 
And here's the truth. God's watching. And God knows. And that's why you don't lay hands on any man quickly, because he can be playing a game outwardly and inwardly. His life is a disaster. He can come to church and act like a godly man like this pastor and go home and spend hours looking at pornography. He can pretend like he's a godly man at the same time be having an affair with the church secretary. He can pretend like he's a godly man and he's stealing money or he's greedy or he's prideful or he's whatever. And what he's saying is, don't lay hands on any man quickly because sometimes their sin is revealed easily, but sometimes it takes time for it to come to the service. This is another reason you shouldn't get married too quick. Amen? Step back and let them find out who they really are over time. Amen? Because anybody can be really good for a few months. Right? Best behavior. I'm on the, I want her to be my wife behavior. And I'm going to open every door. And there'll be a flower on her windshield every day. And you get married, you never see a flower ever again. Where did that guy go? Never opens your door. Right? He's knocking it now. He's getting in the car. Take some time. Right? Take some time. Again. Over time, the true man will be revealed. And then it says, Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. You know, Paul's warning to Timothy was hasty judgments, good or bad, can be inaccurate. And sometimes what someone sees on the outside isn't an accurate picture. So we need to take it slow so we can wait on God for discernment. God is ultimately the one who puts people up and sets them down. We simply recognize what God has already done, and we do not need to force His hand. And so sometimes people put on a good show and look like they're doing a bunch of good works, and sometimes the person who, from your perspective, seems to be doing nothing, spends three or four hours a day on their knees praying. And their good works seemingly are hidden. But in time, if you watch them, their character will be revealed. Amen? And that's really what he's saying. So, in closing, how does God want us to treat His people? We saw last week, Treat older men with respect, younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters with purity. We're to minister to the needs of those who are truly in need. When it comes to pastors, we are to give them honor if they labor in the Word and if they rule well. But we also, when we accuse them, are to do it by the mouths of two or three, not listen to, to the you know, gossip, But at the same time, the pastor is to be held accountable. He absolutely is into a higher level of accountability. And if he needs to be rebuked, do it publicly. And then lastly, how the pastor is to identify leaders. He's to do it without his own prejudice or partiality. He's not to identify people based on who's a good guy or who's his friend or who he plays golf with. It should be based on who God has called. Amen? And then... He tells them not to lay hands on anyone quickly because it takes time for godly character to be revealed. Now, I know this was a very practical text, but you know what? Every one of us needs to heed some of this. That we too need to make sure we don't show partiality. We too to make sure, remember that God is watching and when we live our lives, we need to live a way that glorifies and honors Him. And we need to make sure that we treat people the way the Lord would want us to treat them. That in our office building, we should be the most kind, loving, and godly people in there. People should see us and want to know the God we serve because of the way we treat them. If you have an unsafe spouse, you ought to go home and love on them until they can't stand it. Amen? Amen? They ought to see Jesus in you. When you go home and you're angry and bitter, you're you're driving them away from the Lord. Your kindness ought to lead them to the Lord. Amen? Amen? And the same is true in every aspect of life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. You are a great and an awesome God. We thank You for Your love and Your grace. And Lord, I pray, help us, Lord, to live every day knowing that You're watching. Lord, not living to accommodate men, but to glorify Your name. Lord, living in a way that brings honor unto You. Lord, I do pray for anyone here who's struggling with hidden sin. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that that even today they would come with a confessing heart before You and get right before You. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning that doesn't know You. Open their eyes to the truth of who You are. They may have come here to, to watch a play, but Lord, You've brought them here by divine appointment. Lord, You love them so much You'd rather die than live without them. I pray that even now Your Holy Spirit would just touch their hearts and open their eyes to their need for You as Lord and Savior. Not just to confess their sin and go live their old lifestyle, but Lord, to come and say, Lord, take over my life. Rule and reign in me. Guide my every footstep. Lord, if there's anybody here right now that's in rebellion against you, that maybe has been walking with you, Lord, may today be... I thank you, Lord. We can take a million steps away and it's only one step back. Lord, may we take that step this morning to get right with you. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. I just thank you for those precious children. What a blessing, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.